I'd load up the next dragon, crew dragon, with a bunch of artists and poets and say, you got a week and uh, you're on commission. And when you come back, I want some products that uh, tell the story that these damn astronauts have been struggling <laughs> to tell, you know, for since the beginning of time. And some of them do it okay and others don't do anything, but they all have to use these damn pictures that they took with a camera. Come back and give me word pictures and some pictures also, but and music. And music, but but come back and and tell me in your genre or in your your vehicle, what was it like? I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. I hope you enjoyed the first part of my conversation with former NASA Administrator Charlie Bolden. If you didn't catch it already, you can find it at kathysullivanexplores.com forward slant podcast. Look for episode 65. In part two, we'll get Charlie's perspective on NASA's transition from space shuttle operations to commercial spaceflight, on the real inside workings of Washington, D.C., and what the future holds for space commerce and exploration. So let's launch with Charlie Bolden. So your last shuttle flight, I think, was in 1994, if I recall. That's right. Yep. Fourth flight. And you then went back to your beloved Naval Academy as the deputy commandant, the base superintendent for a stint, and then back to the Marine Corps for another long stint. And there's tons of stories there, but we're in such an interesting time in the space arena, really watching the birth of uh, information of a new space age. Yeah. So I'd like to fast forward to going back to NASA when President Obama asked you to serve as his administrator. Uh, give yeah. us a sense of the state of play, where where NASA itself was at that time. You, you've been there through some interesting times, all the way up to the start of what NASA's doing now with commercial crew and and the Starliner and Orion to go back to the moon and beyond. Give us a sense of that time. And well, I I first of all I, I will tell you, and you know this because I talked to you a lot when you came to NOAA, I was not prepared for Washington, DC. I, I was not a political junkie. Um, I love the Marine Corps and everything. I I almost came back as the deputy administrator once before and, and I got spared that. And so I escaped. And uh, I had sworn in 1992 
after my third <laughs> fight, when I went up to NASA headquarters for a year working as an assistant to Dan Golden, that I would never set foot in Washington again. So you got to learn to this adage of never say never, Charlie. Yeah, well, I did. I said, I said, never again will I set foot in Washington, D.C., because it was it was such a miserable experience um, of dealing with the Hill and all the politics and everything. So, um, you know, I had done nothing in the Obama campaign. I was not looking for a job. I was I had retired from the Marine Corps in 2003, and it was now 2008, 2009. And names kept coming up to be the NASA administrator. I think President Obama must have gone through a half dozen people. Did the president himself call you? No, he did not. So, and, and I, I did not expect to hear anything because everybody knew that I, I had not <laughs> lobbied or anything. And I and every, I think most people knew I had no desire to go back to Washington. But, but I did get a call one day, and I want to say it was probably Aprilish, from White House personnel asking if I would be willing to come back to Washington uh, for a day to talk to someone. And I said, who is it and for what? And they said, well, we really aren't at liberty to tell you. And I said, okay, um, I'm going to pay my way to Washington, D.C. and come back and talk to someone. And you can't tell me who it's going to be or what the purpose is. I, that's said, how they play the game. That's sort of it. I said, I can't come. And I said, thank you very much for the call. And, and they said, well, hold on a minute. And, and there was silence. And then they said, well, the president's science advisor, Dr. John Holdren, wants to kind of pick your brain about your experiences in NASA. So I said, OK, I can I can do that. And I went back and I spent a, about a day with, with Dr. Holdren, with John. And he was incredible. We agreed on some things about, about space and exploration. We talked about everything. And uh, we vehemently disagreed about the National Space Council you know, they they had an intent of standing up a space council and everything. And say more about that. This would be a White House body that oversees what? It would be the National Space Council that exists today that actually generally up until this administration, only only Republican presidents stood up the National Space Council. It's an organ of the White House, of the executive office of the president uh, run by the vice president of the United States that is supposed to be the vehicle that brings together civil and military space so that everybody's speaking from the same sheet of music. And although at NASA, we're not supposed to get involved in national defense space and in the Pentagon, they're not supposed to dip into civil space. This was the place where everybody came together, got synced up and, uh, and, and policies were made, if you will. So when you say synced up and singing from the same song sheet, that's usually shorthand for giving the talking points and told to you know, stay on message. But it sounds like it does more than just align messages. What's the substantive stuff it does? Substantively today, you know, my first experience with the National Space Council and, and the reason I had a bad taste in my mouth was in the Bush administration. I was on orbit in 1992 flying my third mission as the commander of, of one that you will be very familiar with. STS-45, Atlas-1, the Atmospheric Laboratory for Applications and Science. And you may also recall that we were on the flight deck one day, April Fool's Day. We were supposed to land that day. Yeah, when we got a call from the ground telling us that we weren't coming home. But oh, by the way, we have a new NASA administrator. And we looked at each other and went, what? Because there had been no talk about a new NASA administrator or anything. And I went, okay, I got it. It's April Fool's Day now. 
Yeah, I remember that. Let's move on to another topic. And they said, no, this is not April Fool's. We we actually have a new NASA administrator. So the president has has selected uh, Dan Golden to be the NASA administrator, and he's being sworn in this afternoon or tomorrow morning or something, and Admiral Truly is gone. And so Dick Truly was a dear friend of both of ours and, yeah. and it, somewhat responsible, at, I would say, for both of us and some of our successes in the Dick astronaut. Had been in the astronaut corps since the late yep. 60s, early 70s. He'd flown the uh, one of the test flights before the shuttle was actually launched, and he'd flown the second shuttle mission and uh, one other after that. That's that's correct. And so I said, oh, well, wow. Uh, okay, I got it. And when we landed the next day, you and I had agreed, since you were the payload commander and responsible for all the, all the payload activities, you and I had agreed that, okay, contrary to practice by every shuttle crew before us, we'll lay on a gurney and be wheeled off the shuttle like wimps. And we will not go down and kick the tires and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, my recollection is they brought a Dulles Airport kind of crew transporter up (laughs) and matched up with our hatch. I recall we were allowed to walk over into our big old recliner chairs in the transfer van, but we, we didn't get to go kick the tires. But we got into, we got into the recliner chairs and, and on the gurney right away. We didn't get to go down and walk around the vehicle right. because they didn't want us to reacclimate. And as we're laying there, I saw this face come over and lean down and say, I want you to come to NASA headquarters to work for me. And I, I looked up and I won't say it on, on your podcast, but I said, who the F are you? Yeah, because none of us knew, nobody at NASA knew who Dan Golden was and had never seen a picture. George Abbey, who was our boss at the time, well, he wasn't. He was gone. Yeah. But he was at the National Space Council, and George is leaning over, and he went, oh. (laughs) This is the new NASA administrator. This is Mr. Dan Golden. So I said, well, I apologize. I'm very pleased to meet you, Mr. Golden. And when we got back to Houston, and uh, finish most of the other thing that should be noted about that moment in the crew <laughs> transfer van is 40 minutes before you were floating around the ceiling of your spacecraft. And exactly. the last thing in the world you want right after you've landed is any mucky muck administrator in your face. Exactly. You want to pat each other on the back. You want to you know, relax a little bit. It's, you know, great mission, got everything done. We're home alive. And let me get at the shower as soon as possible. And and even the biggest mucky muck in the agency getting right in your face is sort of like, who are you and why do you think I care? <laughs> and why would I ever want to go to Washington, D.C.? Exactly. But long story short, at George's behest, I ended up going to Washington to have dinner with Dan Golden. And George Abbey was another just because out of the blue, legendary George Abbey is a legendary figure uh, in NASA circles and long, a uh, big, huge influence in the astronaut corps. He, so. he hired both you and me and as the director of flight crew operations and then rose to become the director of the Johnson Space Center. And then after leaving, became sort of the assistant to the executive director of the National Space, Space Council. Council. And as a general rule, if you ran on those circles at all, whatever Mr. Abbey asked you to do was understood to be a thou shalt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so because George was such a dear friend of ours and my family's, I said, OK, I'll come up. And, and I did. And I was impressed with Dan Golden's visionary spirit and everything. Didn't know anything about him, didn't know what kind of leader he was or anything. But because his vision was just so great to me, I said, I'll come up for a year and I'll do this. It was the worst year I ever spent. How so? 
I can't say that about a lot because I was, um, you know, I worked with each of the acting deputy administrators, but my number one job was to spend time on the Hill and try to convince people that we needed a space station. And my number one target audience was the Black Caucus, uh-huh. Congressional Black Caucus. And, and I remember that privilege turned out to be one of my greatest experiences because of the people I met, none more impressive than, than the late John Lewis. And I had 15 minutes on John Lewis's schedule one day to go over and talk to him because the, the vote for the space station was coming up. And this is not the International Space Station. This is just a space station that NASA yeah. was trying to get yeah. going. Much different than what we have in orbit now. Exactly. And everybody knew it was going to be a pretty tight vote. And so I went in and introduced myself to Congressman Lewis. And I sat down and and before I could say a word, he started talking about the, the incredible value of NASA and exploration. And, and he went on and on and on about inspiration and blah, 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 blah. And uh, my 15 minutes turned into about 50 minutes. And I finally looked at my watch and I said, you know, Congressman, you have been incredibly kind and I've really overstayed my welcome. So can I thank you? And then I'll, I'll get out of your hair. And he looked at me, he said, I can tell by the smile on your face that uh, you, you feel you've convinced me to vote for the space station. And I said, well, Congressman, after listening to you for the last 50 minutes, I was kind of hoping that I didn't need to convince you that, that you, were, you were convinced yourself. And he said, you know, let me tell you, I meant every single thing I said to you over the last period of time you've been here, because I really believe in that. He said, but I sit in a place called the US Congress where if I'm not reelected, I don't get to serve my constituents. And he says, if I go out and I cast a vote for a space station that takes dollars out of a program from my community back in Atlanta, because NASA doesn't have a single thing in the state of Georgia. And if I go back and vote to send money to NASA that's going to be spent outside the state of Georgia and don't bring stuff into the state of Georgia, I won't be here to help advance what you want to do. And you're going to be okay. Um, you know, you, you guys will wow. get this vote. He said, but I will not vote for the space station. And, and he said, but thanks very much for coming in anyway. And I left. I mean, I was demolished that I had not accomplished my mission, but I was incredibly impressed by this guy called John Lewis that I had not met before. And, uh, and I didn't learn until about a year or two ago when I was talking to Dan Golden. And he said, you know, you, you probably don't know this, but John Lewis did vote he cast his vote in favor of the space wow. station and it was the deciding vote in the house. Wow. Uh, so he said, you may not think you did it. Uh, you did your job, but said he was, he probably just needed a little encouragement to do the right thing. Or do you think, do you think maybe he did because if his vote was going to be a throwaway because it was solidly favor of the space station. He could protect his interests at home, but if it that, came that down to, probably, yeah. I mean, the passion he expressed to you, if he saw all of that, yeah. will go down the tubes. In listening to him, it was not something that he was just saying yeah. to exercise his voice. He, he really meant it. And so I was I left incredibly impressed with him. And I and I always have been. And I think, you know, we lost a, an incredible American hero when he died. Yeah. I just hope that we can do something that that will put his memory in, you know, in in posterity. So. Anyway, enough, enough of that. So that was like your only high point the year in Washington and the rest was just torture? That was it. 
That was it. That was my, that was my one high point. <laughs> and so even after meeting John Lewis, I went back home and I, I told I told Jackie, I said, I would call her sometimes. I said, you know, all I want to do is take a shower. <laughs> I said, I, I feel like I'm filthy. I, you know, all the back and forth when you went over to the hill and the negotiating and the bargaining, because, uh, you know, that's just the way that's just the way Washington works. Hmm. I finally got home. Uh, when they sent me home to take the reins for uh, for STS-60, which was going to be the first joint American shuttle mission, which was an incredible disappointment to me to not, and it wasn't a disappointment to get assigned to be the CDR of STS-60, but when I was told they wanted me to go back to Washington, Dick Covey and his crew had not been named yet for the Hubble servicing mission. Ah, uh, you were hoping for that. I said, is there any chance that this is going to be Hubble so I can go back and finish up the work that, you know, that I started? And they said, nah, not so fast there, Jose. We already have a crew for that. And, and they told me that it was going to be Dick Covey and, and uh, Sox and the crew. And I went, okay. I said, well, what do you want me to do? And they said, well, we've got two Russian cosmonauts who are here in town. And we're going to fly a mission with a Russian cosmonaut as a test to see if we should think about flying Americans on Mir and then later trying to bring them into the international, into the space station program. And I said, forget it. Uh, you know, you got the wrong guy. I said, I don't want to fly with any damn Russian. Said, I'm a Marine. I've trained my life to kill them, and they've trained their lives to kill me. And I have no desire to fly with any damn Russian. And George, again, came to the fore, and he said, hey, look, calm down. Because he was up there as a special assistant to Dan Golden at the time. And uh, he said, just go to dinner tonight at John David and Donna Bartol. And so I went over to, to John's house. There was Sergei Krikalov and Vladimir Titov, and I met them. Vladimir spoke zero English. Sergei spoke fluent English, and we met and uh, went down, went in and sat down, had a glass of wine, had a wonderful dinner, and the conversation over dinner among all of us, the five of us, was about families and kids and everything. And uh, Sergei had a two-year-old daughter, Olga. Uh, Vladimir had an eight-year-old son, Yuri, and a 17-year-old daughter, Marina, who had already come to the U.S., had moved into a place in Houston and had enrolled in San Jacinto Junior College because she wanted to major in business and become an international business specialist. So, you know, we, we spent the night wow. talking about our families and the future and what, what kind of world we wanted. And, uh, and I just changed my mind. And I went in the next morning and I told Dan and George, I'm in. I'm ready to go back to Houston and we'll get started on this thing. And, and that began the next two years of what it was an incredible experience from a life experience for me and my family. You know, we, as you know, every crew becomes a family. And so that was my family for the next two years was Sergey and his family and Vladimir and his family. And then the, I forget what it was, but like 200 or some odd Russians that we brought to Houston because they were their training team, their flight control team, uh, the medical people and everybody, because we really did want to shake this thing out and find out whether we could work together. And the mission was incredibly successful and everybody decided, okay, let's press and let's go with, with the MIR program. And, and so after that, six of our fellow astronauts went to Russia one at a time and flew on MIR as crew members. And of course, nowadays the exchanges has been quite well oiled. So Russians, yeah. cosmonauts come over, train and fly for the United States without yeah. importing their whole team. And, and American astronauts go over to Star City and train without importing the whole NASA team. But, 
Exactly. The other thing is it, it is a time in my life that makes today especially difficult because Sergey, who was my crewmate and taught me quite a bit about flying in space. At the time that he flew with us, he was the most experienced person on the planet. I wasn't it, Sergey, who was he was actually in orbit when the Soviet Union fell. So he, he had the experience of launching from the Soviet Union and landing in the what eventually got named the Republic of Russia. Different flag, everything. He was he was supposed to be there for four months and they asked him to stay for an extra two for some reason. I think they just didn't want to have an all new crew. And and he did. And the wall fell and Russia disintegrated. And the reason he didn't come back until the 10th month was because, as you say, you remember the Russians launch and land in Kazakhstan in a different country. They don't even land in Russia. And so they had to go through what, what used to be one of the SSRs under the exactly, Soviet Union. Exactly. They had to go through bargaining with the Russians and the Ukrainians, by the way, because the Ukrainians provided engines and other components for the spacecraft. So they had to arrange to get a spacecraft, a Soyuz available, to bring a crew up to get Sergei and replace him and, and get him back. And, and that finally happened 10 months after he launched. And today, Sergei is number two in the Russian Space Agency in Roscosmos. I don't get a chance to talk to him. And, and I would not, you know, my, my hope is that he's safe and everything else. And But that's what makes this so difficult for us because, you know, you and I worked with Russian people and not the Russian government. Mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and they are different, no matter what we think. And we just hope everything turns out for the better over in Ukraine. You know, just real quickly, my bit of experience of that regard was 1985, when it was still the Soviet Union. Yeah. Paul Weitz and Dale Gardner and I were the astronaut representatives at the Paris Air Show. And we were not just eye candy, but we're definitely props for the American presence there. So we're told at one point we need to be up and ready to go super early in the morning because we're going to be snuck in a back door of the French pavilion. The Soviet cosmonauts are going to be snuck in the other back door because at the time, the United States and Russia had severed formal diplomatic ties over the war in Afghanistan. But the two agencies had gotten clearance to let the astronaut and cosmonauts meet and share some experiences. From the Soviet side, I think what it was really about is picking our brains about a reusable vehicle, the space shuttle, because they, they'd not yet announced theirs, their Buran that later exactly. came out. But it was, you know, I, I felt like I suddenly was a player in a Jean Le Carre spy novel, sneaking <laughs> in back doors. And, you know, but once we got there, it was uh, Sasha Serebrov met Sergei a year or so later. But it was just as you say, we instantly had everything in common as flyers, as space explorers, as human beings, and just chuckled a little bit, frankly, about the nonsense going on 43 levels above our heads. No, you're absolutely right. So, you know, we started this conversation about space councils. So that was what John and I disagreed on, Dr. Holder, because they honestly believed that they needed a space council. And, I, and he said, why, you know, what, what's the problem with a National Space Council? And I said, well, the primary problem is for the NASA administrator, you now have pushed him one layer down in the hierarchy. Yeah. And so it means that instead of working for the president, he now works, he or she now works for the National Space Essentially Council. Essentially for the Space Council. Yeah. And so it's a it's a layer that I don't think you all need to need to get into right now because of some of the stuff that I understand you want to do. And he said, well, thank you very much for your visit. Go home and thanks. 
And several weeks later, I got another call saying, hey, can you come back again? We, we really want to talk to you one more time. And I said, okay, who am I going to talk to this time? And what about? And they said, well, we can't tell you. I said, look, we've been through this drill. <laughs> if you're not, not going to tell me who I'm going to talk to, I've already talked to Dr. Holder. And so either tell me who I'm going to talk to or I'm not coming. And they said, well, the president would like to talk to you. And I said, I can't give you an answer now because I have to ask my family. Now, my family says this never happened. But it did happen, at least with my wife. But we had a chat and she said, don't go because he's going to ask you to do something and you don't know how to say no. And I said, <laughs> and I told her, I said, Jackie, I cannot not go. I've got to meet President Barack Obama. I said, this is a this is probably a one time opportunity that will never come again. So I can say no. He's besides he's not going to ask me anything. And I was right <laughs> because I, I went back. I was supposed to meet with him one afternoon. It was a horrible day for him with Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, then prime minister of Israel. And their conversation went well into the night. And so they asked me if I could stay over and talk to him the next morning. And uh, I said, shoot, it's the president. I can, I can stay as long as you want me to. And I got in to see him for about 25 minutes the next day. You, you've been with him probably more than I have. He was mesmerizing. The depth and breadth of, of his conversation and everything. And we didn't I don't know whether NASA came up more than once or twice. He talked about his vision for the future and exploration, but the main thing was wanting to inspire kids and how you know NASA was a tool that did that better than anybody else. And the fact that he also wanted to expand our outreach to international, non, what he called non-traditional international partners and everything. Never said anything about the NASA administrator's job, never hinted that, you know, I want you to think about coming to work for me or anything. Uh, at the end of the conversation, you know, he had to go to another meeting, I guess. So he said, thanks for coming and good to meet you. And I left and went back home. And I said, Jackie, it was unbelievable. You know, he didn't ask me a thing. Uh, so I think we can go back. I'm free and, and clear. And, I'm free and clear. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm, I'm done, done with that. And a couple of weeks later, we got the call saying, hey, we understand the drill. This time, the president wants to nominate you to be the NASA administrator. So can you come back to Washington and start going through the prep? for your Senate hearings and everything. And I talked to the family again and they said, what the heck, you know, just let's do it. So my plan, if confirmed, was to come back, spend the first six months by myself. And then after that, we'd see how things went. And then I could probably commute back and forth. And uh, that went out the window after the first six months when I was struggling. <laughs> so, I mean, I was struggling mightily just to, just to keep my head above water and in the environment. Because I, having not been in the campaign, having not known anyone in the transition team, nor all the plans that had been put in place by the transition team, I had my hands full with, with trying to do things that, you know, like, okay, announcing we're going to retire the shuttle, announcing that we're going to do all these other kinds of things. And, you know, we were going to give all the money to the commercial sector and let them go do stuff because we didn't know how to do it. How much were you able to dissect or debate or push on those? How much of those were just pre it's cooked, man. This is what you're doing. Yeah. I had free reign to debate, to, to push back. I had a, you know, I had a, a meeting with the director of OMB and the, the and budget the office science advisor and all other kinds of things. But when, when the, in the end, when the 2011 budget was rolled out, they said, Hey, this is your budget and uh, you go defend it. So we had put together a pretty good package that we sent over to the white house and the big thing that we had pled for but lost 
was if we're going to retire the shuttle, and this is not our decision. This decision was actually made back in 2003 by the Bush administration. I agree with that because I've always said shuttle is not going to get us to Mars and I want to go to Mars. So I, I agree with this. We need to retire shuttle, but we need to have something suitable to replace it. And, and I wasn't convinced that Constellation was the right program, but there were some people who, who were out for- That was the NASA plan at the time exactly. to be the successor to shuttle. Yeah, Constellation was two vehicles, one heavy lift launch vehicle, much like the space launch system of today, and then a smaller Ares-1 that was going to carry the crew to right. orbit. And that came from the Columbia Accident Investigation Board. When that board recommended or not recommended, suggested or directed that NASA should no longer fly crew and cargo- On the same platform which had nothing, you know, really that had nothing to do with the accidents of Columbia or Challenger. And so I don't know where that recommendation came from, but the NASA administrator at the time accepted it, lock, stock and barrel and said, well, we're going to do all that. And so when I came in, I said, you know, with the guys from the Office of Management and Budget, talking about terminating shuttle is really going to get us in trouble because termination is a legal term. And we're going to end up with costs that we don't, we can't afford for one thing, and that we don't want to incur. Plus, we're going to incur the ire of the world. And, uh, and we were absolutely right. What I didn't know, uh, and the thing that caused me the most heartburn was when I got called in to see um, Senator Lauren Hatch, Orrin Hatch from Utah, was we were going to shut down- Where the, the solid, solid rocket boosters are- We were going to shut down, shut down the solid rocket industry because shuttle- I didn't realize it, but the shuttle solid rocket boosters use more solid rocket fuel than everything combined in the U.S. inventory, civil and military. Which is a lot, by the way. A lot of expendable launchers have much smaller solid rockets strapped on them to add up to enough thrust. Yeah, you're talking about a little rocket coming out off the, the wing of an airplane versus two big old solid rocket boosters with two million pounds of of propellant in each. So in my first hearing after for the budget, I forget who asked, but I mean, it hit me like a ton of bricks because it wasn't one of my prep questions. But the, the senator or representative, whichever one I was in, said, did you at any time prior to this budget have a conversation with the Secretary of Defense about the impact of this decision on DOD? And I mean, you could see me turn white. Uh, duh, and, yeah. Uh, and and I looked out at my the legislative affairs guys, and everybody went duh. And I said, no, sir. I. I how did I mean? How did they miss that? That's huge. And uh, and they said, did you not think that it was important for you to go and talk to the Secretary of Defense about this industry that you're about to shut down before you made this decision? And I said, no, sir. I did not. And that was. That was an error on my part. So I went out of the meeting and that was what began a quarterly meeting that we had with the Secretary of the Air Force, the head of the US Space Force, where we compared notes. And you know, before any of us made a decision about anything, we at least knew what everybody else was doing. That was one of the ways that when we went back to the drawing board and uh, decided what we were gonna come up with, and contrary to, to what people say, the Senate did not send us a launch vehicle. They didn't send us the plans or anything. We spent a little bit more than a year evaluating the Constellation program and what pieces of it we could pick because we wanted to be efficient and effective in making the transition. And we didn't want to throw away the baby with the bathwater. And we ended up keeping Orion pretty much in toto. 
Which is the capsule, the crew capsule. Which is the space capsule that the crew goes in. But we had two problems with the Constellation vehicles, Aries, and the Constellation capsule, Orion, in that the two were incompatible from a vibration standpoint. And I, and I don't want to get technical here, but but the two vehicles had a different resonance, if you will, how, how they vibrated due to all kinds of stuff going on around them. And most people predicted, all the analysis showed that the astronauts would arrive on orbit and, and they'd be so shaken that they would be incapable of doing anything for days. Yeah. And so that was unacceptable to me. We could not get either of the prime contractors, Lockheed or Boeing, to say, I can fix this. Both said, no, my vehicle's good. You got to fix it. <laughs> and, and so the, the bottom line for me was, okay, we got to get rid of this. We, we'll just scrap it and we'll start from scratch. It's what, you, what NASA administrator doesn't just study some materials and get some briefings in his office and then make that decision. That's right. Surely you have to walk around and talk around to a lot of different folks to be sure the budget office and the White House and the Space Council they know the what and the why and the wherefore, and, and they'll back you, right? Or it's a lot of mother may I. You're absolutely right, as you know very well from your experiences at NOAA. And so I engendered some incredible long-lasting friendships in the House and Senate, particularly with the staff, but also with the members and, and always with the chair and, and ranking member. Of the Appropriations Committee. Yeah. And the other thing was Jack Lou, who was... I forget what his position was at the time, but he came in as the director of the Office of Management and Budget, and then eventually became Obama's chief of staff. Jack Lou was incredibly helpful and congenial and everything. His predecessor, who had written the budget the first time, wouldn't even answer the phone call from the NASA administrator. But Jack turned out to be a totally different animal. And the president had an, a legislative affairs advisor, and um, his name escapes me right now. But he became my lifeline for my entire time there at NASA because he had been both on the House and Senate side as a staffer. He was eminently qualified and unbelievably respected by members and staff in both the House and Senate. And he was perhaps the only person in the Obama administration that they would listen to and believe. Yeah. Uh, that's how bad relationships had gotten early on. Between NASA and the White House, you mean? No, between, between the, the White Hill. House and the Congress. Ah, okay. Uh, so this was way above NASA. This was way <laughs> above NASA. But this was a guy who, when he came in and spoke, they listened because they, they knew him and respected him, and he was a colleague of theirs. Yeah. And so he kind of shepherded me through all these difficult times, and uh, we ended up having a meeting, a critical meeting, just before they wrote the 2010 Authorization Act. And for people who don't know, the House and the Senate do two particular things for every organization in the government. They write an authorization bill that is subsequently signed by the president, and that lays the groundwork. That's the, the roadmap that they think an organization ought to follow to, to, to comply with whatever amount of money the Congress appropriates or gives them out of the appropriation committee. And, and just to flag that, some people seem to think that head of an agency is like a CEO who decides what the nah. agency ought to do. And have, nah. the, the authorizing committee lays out that roadmap that you are going to do because it, it ends up having the force of law. You're going to do it whether you like it or not. You're going to do that. And then the appropriators. You may be the CEO, yeah. but your board is going to fire you. That's right. If you don't. Do it. So, I mean, 
think of it that way. You know, even a CEO can't go off willy nilly doing stuff. The authorizers approve your strategy largely because they wrote it with a lot of conversation. Exactly. And then the appropriators basically decide how much money you're going to get to go how fast. And and sometimes, you know, which thing the authorizers said you could do that they don't give you any money for. That's absolutely right. But we reached an agreement thanks to President Obama's legislative affairs guru. He and Jack Lou, Jack Lou, Jack Lou, Jack Lou. I want to make sure I get the right the name right because there's a well, Jack the head of, the head of OMB the head of the Office of Management and Budget who became the president's chief of staff. He uh, we had a meeting with the president one day about the budget and where I had told him what I thought and everything else. I told him that we had this meeting arranged with Senator Nelson and Senator K. Belly Hutchinson, the the ranking member and chairman of the of the Senate Authorization Committee, and we had a plan for going in, we had worked with him and we thought we had a pretty good authorization bill ready to be signed. And um, Jack Lou and the, and the legislative affairs guys said, we agree uh, because we've all been involved. We all know what it says. We think you ought to sign on to this. And so we went over and had a meeting in, in Senator K. Bailey Hutchinson's office. And, um, and we talked it through. And, and the question asked was, when we sign this bill, is the president going to sign it and support it? And the statement that that the legislative affair guy said, I'm he and Jack Lou said, I am here speaking for the president and you got our word. We're going to we're going to execute this authorization act. That's pretty cool. That was what became the birth of SLS and Orion commercial crew and cargo and everything else that NASA is doing today. And it was a, it was a civics lesson for me, the NASA administrator, as I sat there kind of mesmerized by, by all this <laughs> magic going on and by the fact that somebody could really say I'm speaking for the president because as the NASA administrator, I did not speak for the president. <laughs> you you got to defend what the president has told you and says, but you don't get you don't get to put his words in your mouth. That's right. Absolutely. That's right. Same at Noah. That was yeah. among the experiences that I had. So let's fast forward again a little bit. We really are in my take is watching the emergence and the slow maturing of a very new space age. And there are a lot of folks that say you can kind of encapsulate it by noting that the the future is going to be in space, the future is going to be increasingly congested, contested, and commercial. But I'm interested on your take on the big drivers that are really pushing that future and the, the big issues that are not yet solved, that are real you know, hurdles and potential roadblocks to some of these visions. So talk us through that. What, how would you characterize, summarize the new space age? Uh, you did a pretty good job. You know, the, the one thing is that NASA remains the leader and the catalyst for discovery and everything. A lot, of, a lot of people worry or ask me, are you worried that NASA will become irrelevant? You know, that com- the commercial sector is going to take over exploration, is going to get to Mars. You know, Elon says he'll be there and such and such. And my, my answer to people is the private sector, one, can't do that. And two, why they don't. Well, the private sector without government leadership doesn't have the staying power to run an exploration program. The private sector is driven by the market and the market will not tolerate the kind of exploration 
research and development experimentation that the federal government does, that you do at NOAA and that I did at NASA, because there is no return on investment. Uh, you know, investors look for, look for something to come back this year. H- how long were most of your NOAA programs where you would, and we didn't, you and I never saw a, a monetary return on investment. That was, that, that was not our return. Our return was betterment of the planet, blah, 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 yeah, blah. Benefit of the public and, and knowledge. The benefit of the public. And you can't attach a dollar figure to that. We, so it's kind of patient capital. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And so that's where NASA and NOAA and federal agencies will always be. They'll be out front sending the first people to Mars. The good thing is because we had the patience to develop a very vibrant commercial sector that can now provide the launch capability. So NASA doesn't have to worry about that anymore. I don't, you know, the NASA administrator, I worried about launch vehicles when I was the NASA administrator. Bill Nelson may not, I, I, he, he knows what a launch vehicle is, of course, because he launched on one, but he doesn't have to worry about launch vehicles yeah. right now. It, it's kind of like if you need to send your people on a business trip or a government trip from LA to New York, you don't need to be worrying about the tire pressure on airplanes and you exactly. just buy a ticket. We, we buy a ticket or if we don't want to put them on a commercial airplane, we go to NetJet and we charter it. Charter one. Yeah. And so that's what we do with, with SpaceX and hopefully soon Boeing. We charter it. We go and we tell them or we get it like a rental car. We say we need one spacecraft for this amount of time to get these many people to space. Can you do that? And if you can, tell me how much it's going to cost. And we generally go out and we give the contract to the, to the, to the best bidder, the people that we can work with the most. And so that's something we don't have to worry about. As we move toward the lunar surface, going back to the lunar surface, the private sector is really looking good as they're developing landers and proposals for for components to what NASA calls the gateway. So at at some point, NASA's not gonna have to worry about that. And their focus will turn to vehicles to get us to Mars, vehicles to get us to the Martian surface, and then drag the private sector along once the government has spent the money to do that. But Charlie, those are commercial companies, private sector companies worrying about a rate of return. But I wanna ask you this both about going to low earth orbit and about going to the moon. Government's role in spurring that and sort of anchoring it with the first investments and the first contracts. But if you think about the parallel to airlines, airlines no longer rely on some big old government contract to keep them afloat because so many people want to travel by plane for so many reasons. There's a there's a huge demand function that's as varied as human beings are. Do you see that emerging in going to low Earth orbit or going to the moon? Something that kind of truly vibrant a market? No, not in your and my lifetime. Okay. My hope is that somewhere down the line, and I don't know where that somewhere down the line is, people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and people that we don't even know about yet with other space company, launch companies that we don't even know about yet, they will have succeeded in perfecting reusability and everything else such that the cost of getting, you know, a kilogram of mass to space is like putting it on FedEx. That day is long from now. If we can't get a kilogram of stuff at a reasonable cost, we don't stand a snowball's chance in hell of getting a human body, a human being to space 
with any guarantee that we're going to return them safely. So that's always going to be much more expensive than cargo. And we're just not there yet. You know, if if Branson can send somebody, and I'm not sure what his price is today, I think it's 250000 a seat. That is out of that is out of reach the average man and woman on the planet. And he so, sends you from one part of New Mexico to another. To another. <laughs> now, you know, and uh, I think what was the price for uh, Axiom was 50 million per 55 seat. 55 million per seat. Yeah, that's out of reach of the average man and woman. And I think of something being practical and usable and public when every man and woman stands an opportunity to do that. And that does not exist today. And, and it angers me when people say, you know, I'm gonna put a million people on a starship and send them to Mars. We don't have a million people who can afford one seat. <laughs> when we reach the price point that people can afford by yeah. at least the hundreds of thousands or, or millions, what's your take on, on what their purposes will be? Very, I mean, you know, I, if, if I were king for a day, I'd load up the next dragon, crew dragon, with a bunch of artists and poets and say, you got a week and uh, you're on commission. And when you come back, I want some products that uh, tell the story that these damn astronauts have been struggling <laughs> to tell, you know, for since the beginning of time. And some of them do it okay and others don't do anything, but they all have to use these damn pictures that they took with a camera come back and give me word pictures and some pictures also, but- And music. And music, but but come back and, and tell me in your genre or in your, your vehicle, what was it like? So those would be the first people I'd send. And my guess is if you send Amanda Gorman to space for a week- Oh yes. With, with Nikki Giovanni, I mean, two generations of incredible poets, we'd have- kids from Harlem and you'd have kids from every zip code with those poets. You'd have people lined up uh, to go to space. People who say, I don't want to go to space. It's too dangerous. Blah, 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 blah. What am I going to do? Well, and I all said that about aviation in the very know, early I days. Know, so, I, know, yeah. I know. Yeah. But that would be my, that would be my king for a day. Give me Amanda Gorman and Nikki Giovanni. Oh, I'm right there with you. I'll, I'll chip in for the ticket. <laughs> I want to read those poems. Oh, that, yeah, that's fabulous. I want to ask you one other odd, a little bit of a left field question, because everyone keeps asking me, and you were way closer to it at the time, but anyone who knows I worked on Hubble and was part of building the toolkit that let it be maintained and serviced and has kept it alive for more than twice its lifetime. The first thing they asked me about the James Webb Space Telescope is, you know, what were they thinking? That it's, it's a million miles away from Earth, kind of in the wrong direction, the opposite side of the sun, and not built at all to be maintained. You know, how's it ever going to last? You presided over a yeah. key period of James Webb, and I didn't quite make, well, you maybe were there, but not as administrator for the launch. What's, what's your answer to that question? Isn't it devastating that it's not maintainable? No, not really. Why not? It has a purpose. And we were, I say we, people who briefed me were confident enough in the technology that we would not have a Hubble travesty because it doesn't have the, it's not the kind of observatory that Hubble is. You know, Hubble's an observatory that has six new telescopes on it now because we could visit it and everything. And, and James Webb is not that kind of observatory. So unless we're planning to change out the 18 segments, 
which provide the, the, the data. 18 segments of the mirror. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we'd want to change them out as technology improves and we have the capability of gathering even more energy from more distant places. I mean, so we can guarantee that we can really go back to the beginning of time. I just don't think it was worth it when we're already developing follow-ons to James Webb right now. And what we're, I think what we found with James Webb, and I'm way out of my league here, you can help me here. You know, it's an infrared imaging telescope and it has one purpose and that's to grab energy that other, other instruments cannot detect. I mean, we send it where we send it and we freeze it. I mean, it's almost zero, it's almost, you know, absolute zero. Yeah, it's hyper, hyper cold. The way I explain it to people who are like me, like Marines, I say, you remember the first time you put on a set of night vision goggles and the world just lit up and you could see stuff you couldn't see before? I said, that's James Webb. That's Webb, yeah. It's a set of night vision goggles uh, 1.5 kilometers away from Earth that are enabling us to see stuff we couldn't see before. Because and remember of, when you put those night vision goggles on, everything sort of shimmered? Oh, I did. I do That's indeed. because of the heat, the ambient heat and the way it affects the detectors. That's why we froze it. Yeah. yeah. Get rid of all that. And I think it will more than fulfill its purpose. The data we're going to get is going to be voluminous and will be generations before we even look at one inkling of the data. So let's let technology come along to replace it. And I mean, I think, it, you know, in some future life, we may want to have something that's a million and a half kilometers away that's, that's serviceable by, by human beings. But will James Webb last long enough for us to be able to reach one and a half kilometers away from Earth with a human being? We can't do that right now. Right. We, uh, you might have an outpost there, a scientific outpost there at some point, like an Antarctic research station, but exactly. kind of a little further away. Yeah. But that, that's my take on it, my, my uneducated take. Oh, uh, yeah. Uneducated by, you know what. <laughs> well, I, we ought to bring this to a close. This has been a great conversation. Do you a little bit of a lightning round of questions? Sure. Would you go back? Yes. Would Jackie let you? That's the only thing that I'm not, I could convince her, yes. <laughs> And if the offer came up, if they both were on the table at the same time, moon or Mars? Mars. I'll take either, but, but if given a choice, I want to go to Mars. I, and here's my reason, and I know this is the lightning round. We really are not going to learn very much that benefits humanity on Mars from going back to the moon. We're going to be able to do all kinds of technological stuff. The moon has no atmosphere. Uh, Mars does. The moon can't be terraformed. Mars, maybe, I'm not a big terraform person, but if, if people want to try it, you know, over time, God may do like he's doing here on Earth. He may terraform it on his own because we get wild and crazy when we go up to Mars and, <laughs> and uh, you know, all of a sudden it starts heating up again, but let's hope not. Your three best nuggets of advice for a young person listening to this today. Study hard, work hard, never be afraid of failure. Ah. Never, ever be afraid of failure. Don't let anybody tell you what you cannot do or what you should do. Uh, listen respectfully to your parents, but follow your passion because, you know, it's your life. Why is there so much fear of failing? Because we're told that it's not acceptable. Ah. That's the only reason. I, I think left to their own designs, kids will, they'll try everything and fail and get up and go back and do it again until they get it right. They, they just do that instinctively. It's parents that tell them, you, no, you, you can't do that. You, yeah, watch out. Be careful. Don't even try until you're ready. What's your hope for the future? What gives you hope for the future? 
oh, I'm, an, I'm the eternal optimist. I am a, I'm a person of faith. One of my priests told me one time when I was telling her I was really struggling right now. Um, she said, well, you know, some people say that the eternal optimist is a person of faith. So I, I think I'm, my eternal optimism is explained by my faith. I just think um, we are created by an omnipotent being, male, female. I don't think it matters or what it is. And I, I think our purpose is to make this earth on which we live a better place and a sustainable place. And I think we'll do that over time. I just think there are too many good people on the planet to let evil overcome us, you know, and it doesn't take a lot of evil people. It's going to take a lot more of us good people. And I'm taking the liberty of classifying myself as a good person, but, but I think we're up to the challenge. So I'm very hopeful that we'll get things straightened out. Life will be better. Life was like I started out. I did not come from humble beginnings. A lot of people, you know, like to think that because they like to see somebody like me and, and not believe that we could have had a really rough time, but thought it was good. I thought my childhood was incredible. I didn't have the same quality of education as everybody else, but I learned far more than I think a lot of my white kids across town did because I had better teachers. My, my teachers were all dedicated and passionate and focused and knew how difficult life was gonna be for me and prepared me adequately to go out into a world that wasn't gonna treat me fairly. And they, uh, they educated me very early on that life is not fair. So get over it. You know, if you're, looking, if you're looking for somebody to call you in and hug you and tell you, oh baby, everything will be okay, push them away. Ain't gonna happen. Life is not gonna happen. How did they say it back in the old days? You pay your money and you take your chance. The other version I liked is shape your future or suffer your fate. That's it. I like it. I watch people like you, Kathy. And I, I mean, I had, and I've told you this before. I watched you get abused and in all kinds of funny ways. And you didn't seem to let it bother you at all. It just, you let water roll off your back. And um, I, I told you about Alex Lay, but I've watched too many people who went through much more than I did and come out on the other end, really good. And, uh, and it's because they're good people and good things happen to good people every once in a while. From your lips to God's ears. <laughs> well, Charlie B, this is as it always is for me, such a delight to chat with you. And thank you so much for being so generous with your time that we could wander and cover this great waterfront in such wonderful, rich detail and color. And thank you for being my commander on my flight, and most of all, for being my friend. Hey, thank you so very much. Take care of the dog. I see him moving around back. <laughs> He's working on it. <laughs> Love you, Kathy, and uh, take ya. care of yourself, and we're looking forward to seeing you in person again. Likewise. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com.